This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Before we get to today's podcast, I just want to say we have great listeners and want more people to be able to get the content that you love. To help spread the front office features word, we need you to do a few things. First, follow us on social media. Search front office features on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn for tons of content to help your growing sports business career. We also need you to rate and review on our Apple and Spotify podcast pages. The more you do that, the easier it is for others to find front office features. If you have already done that, thank you. Now go share this episode on your Instagram story. Hello and welcome to Front Office Features. I am Rob Crane and uh, we've got two guests today. Uh, We've got Bill Hipsher, who is uh, the owner of Herdat Films. Herdat Films is the one who created 50 Summers, in which he was the producer. 50 Summers was the documentary that I was in. I haven't even seen a movie in a decade, but I was in one. And uh, thanks to Bill, I was uh, part of 50 Summers, along with Dan Napoli, who was the director of 50 Summers and all from Herdat Films. Uh, Gentlemen, how are you? We're great. Thanks for having us. Doing well, Rob. It is uh, it is a pleasure to have you, and it's uh, great to hear your voices again. And um, can we? I want to talk. This conversation may go a billion different places, which I'm all good with. Um, <laughs> but I first off, I want to talk a little bit about Fifty Summers because that's how we got connected, and then I kind of want to take. Uh, a, a route into talking about how you guys got into the industry and then also about how content and media is changing and how that kind of uh, works with sports. So let's kind of on those three kind of topics, let's kind of go into the first one. Can we talk about 50 Summers and how uh, how it got started um, and what your guys' role was that in, in that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I'll flip it up to Bill, though, because it it really is, um, you know, the the purple ice cream unicorn that became 50 Summers is all (laughs) happening in his brain, man. Yeah. um, So I don't know how how it started exactly. Uh, It started as as a little idea. and, And we'd been working with the Omaha Storm Chasers as a marketing partner. Uh, for for a couple of years, um, I've kind of been around the organization either as a fan or in some business relationship for I don't know forty years, and um, got to know Marty a little bit, and we started talking about their plans and and what we could do for uh, the fiftieth season of the Omaha Storm Chasers, 
And as we're talking through some high level, like what we could do with social and how we kind of prepare for a brainstorming session, I just threw out to Marty. I'm like, hey, you know, there's a great story here. Have you uh, considered maybe doing like a, a documentary, a short or something else? And uh, he said, no, but uh, I like the idea. And if you uh, give me a treatment to look at, I'll talk to Gary. And um, I wrote it up that night, sent it over to him and they were interested. And then I walk over to Dan and say, hey, Dan, we got an awesome story to tell. And I get to hand it off to him and he goes, does his magic. <laughs> they, uh, and Dan did some magic. Um, so what was it about the Omaha Storm Chasers and telling that story that had you so interested? It was just being a baseball fan or was it something specific? So partly that, partly from our, our marketing uh, engagement with them, we got to see a lot more of what was happening behind the scenes and really get a real, like for the first time in understanding that what happens in minor league baseball has very little to do with what's going on between the white lines, but outside the white lines and that experience that you're creating. And then growing up in Omaha um, and, and going to see them at Rosenblatt and uh, being a part of their transition to a new stadium, like there was this knowing that they could potentially move. There was this part of the community that the storm chasers made up over the years that I felt was a really compelling story um, about our community and about the storm chasers and about baseball. And I figured with those three things, if we have three primary topics that, that are all, um, worth listening to, we could maybe have a good story there. So that's where, that's where it came from more than just baseball. And so where I came in on it, Rob, which is, which is an interesting adjacent. So, um, I've been in Nebraska since 1994, but I grew up in Denver. Um, and, uh, I was a college baseball player, not a good one. Um, huh. but I was, <laughs> welcome, a college to the, welcome to the club. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and again, Again, and through some exposure to the Storm Chasers, one of the things that I found really fascinating too is, I, and, I, and I'm a lifelong baseball fan. My dad was a Brooklyn Dodger guy. Like he was in like fourth grade when they won in '55 or something like that. He remembers getting the day off. But, but kind of like what Bill mentioned is, I really didn't understand what minor league baseball was about at first, and I thought that was so interesting. In that, like, hey. If I'm like kind of a hard, I'm not as hardcore as I used to be maybe, but a hardcore major league baseball fan, and I don't really understand what minor league baseball is really about and like what it really starts to mean to the community. It's like, oh, there's kind of an untold story there. And I think another thing for me as, as a director that was I kind of like a flip side coin inspiration, if you will was um, the 30 for 30 doc um, Believe Land about Cleveland in that Omaha in a way was the opposite where we almost lost the franchise a billion times, but it yeah. never happened. Um, so with those kind of things floating around and then, you know, and, and, and Bill and I talking and, and, you know, Bill really kind of pointing out too that just overall – um, it seemed like that story of minor league baseball, like the real story, um, which I think we both agree is kind of like what it means to the community and what it means to the culture, um, really wasn't told a lot. So would you say that learning, being baseball fans, would you say that the thing you took away the most from getting kind of 
diving deep into the minor league world was the impact that they have on the community or would there be something else that you said, wow, I really had no freaking idea that's what you guys did in minor league baseball? Um, for me on the, on the broad, the broad stroke, it was absolutely that it was how endearing, um, those franchises are and how much they mean to those cities that, that it's maybe the only thing they have. Yeah. I think for me, uh, one of the things that I took away was what the, the employees, the, the staff puts into pulling off a season. And uh, you mentioned it in the film uh, where you guys have 72 days that you guys are open for business. And, watching the amount of effort that went into pulling that season off. And I, and I knew it from Marty's perspective, having known Marty for years. And, um, you know, if, another reason to make the film is you have a great central character in Marty who has a, a, a great personality. And, and his a, head's I'm getting like, bigger as you talk about it. Don't nope. say anything good about him. This podcast <laughs> is only demeans Marty and brings him down. <laughs> but Yeah. I mean, it was amazing to see what they put in and uh, especially a lot of the, so you had these people who were like lifelong with the team and the club and, and it was their life. And then you had people just getting started in the business who were going to do anything to make it happen, whether it be mascots or you see it in the film again, like rolling t-shirts the right way. Like those kind of things <laughs> that we got to see were really. Can like, I say, can I, I say one thing? Can I interrupt yeah. you one thing about the rolling t-shirt things? So I was watching that, uh, your, the film for the first time, um, how Casey Long, was rolling t-shirts is how I taught Casey Long how to roll t-shirts. So I took great pride that she knew what the hell she was doing. That's awesome. Yeah. And passed it on to correct somebody and be like, I, hey, I, hey, I, hey, I, hey, hey, fix that. Hey, 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 we got to worry about the sleeves and how we get this thing in here. Yeah. Uh, but that's, uh, that's interesting. So I, I apologize for interrupting you, Bill, for, no, uh, but good clothes. Uh, but um, so, you have this idea, you talk to Marty and you reference Gary. Gary Green is the owner of the, uh, of, of the team. Uh, and they go, yeah, this sounds cool. Okay, I'm going to ask you a question. Then what? Can you walk us through the process of what it's like to go from idea to then filming and then putting this all together? Walk us through the process. What, how does this even come about? Um, so from the producer standpoint, uh, we get that okay, and then I think you just kind of start dreaming about what stories you can tell. And I think if Dan and I went back and looked at some of the original storyboards, there were there was way more that we could have told than we had room for in this documentary. And then as we started to go through it, I wasn't sure what this would end up being. I thought it might just end up being a community piece that we share locally and, and it, you know, helps connect the storm chasers to the Omaha community and their time here in Omaha uh, up to something that's a minor release. I didn't think we'd get the kind of pickup that we did, but as we started to go through it and Dan can speak to how we had some of these, are you kidding me moments, but the people who were willing to help, uh, whether that be Gary and Marty opening doors or minor league baseball helping to open doors and, and make connections, it was just amazing. And then all of a sudden you realize like, wow, we're in something a little bit bigger. And last minute you're like, we need a real name for uh, as a, a narrator. We can't get by with the voiceover talent we thought we were going to use. So Dan, you want to maybe pick it up from when yeah. we decided? I mean, so it's sort of, it's, it's sort of interesting. Like, I don't think I've ever sort of said it like this, but like, so from where I sat, 
I was like, you know, and honestly, and I'm not just saying this because he's on the other side of the podcast, but I'm so grateful and so blessed with this came in for Bill because I'm like, this is it, man. This is my, sh- this is the shot. Um, I've been directing for uh, 10 or 12 years and done like small action sports documentaries. And, and like Bill said, just because of whom we could have access to, I was like, oh my God, dude, this is like, we are going to, we're going to do everything humanly possible to knock this thing out of the park, cross our fingers and hope the stars align on some things that happen. So what you start doing, um, and I think a lot of people don't understand this, of the amount of writing and research that you do for documentaries, right? Really? So what are some of the, what some of the writing and research that you had to do? So some of it is to just like, um, okay, let's get that, let's get that Omaha story. Like, right. Let's get like in just like, okay, what's the timeline of, um, you know, the, um, okay. They, they launched in 69. Who was the first manager? Like, okay. When did ownership change hands? And then, you know, we, we always kind of knew, you know, Bill was like, you know, before he just kind of like finished like revving up, revving us up as like the race car on the, on the carpet that you kind of just rev up and then you let go, you know, I remember play when you were a little kid, he was like, you know, he's like, there's, I'd really like to see there be three elements to this film. Um, I, you know, he's like, I think we could, we could be successful if we tell Omaha's story, the broader minor league baseball story and the story of the staff. And then he kind of left it to, to, to me and to my team and like, okay, so it's like, how do you sort of weave that together? So part of the way you weave that together is by starting to do research. And honestly, like, we embedded with the game day staff for like seven games in a row, um, probably almost two straight weeks. And then kind of started to realize like, like that's research as to be like, okay, we don't need to do this every day, but I'm getting super valuable information. And, and also when you do docs on some level, you have to really ingratiate yourself with that community or that group of people that you're, that you're talking about. So you get the Omaha story and what we did in this case was, uh, you know, and there was, was a giant board in our, our offices. Um, you know, we're writing out a timeline and then we're writing out a timeline of major events in minor league baseball. And then you start to cast like, okay, well, you obviously know you're going to talk to Marty. You obviously know you're going to talk to Gary. And we did a couple rounds. I think we did two interviews with Mar- two rounds of interviews with Marty, two rounds of interviews with Gary. And you start to see things take shape. Okay. And then you start to figure out who you get access to. And like, ultimately, what got to be really, really interesting. And at this point, so we're rolling camera. This is months in, but like, I haven't cut a, 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 a frame yet. I haven't, a stitch hasn't been cut yet. Um, we kind of laid these two timelines over one another and what really clicked when it was like, Oh, I think we got something is almost lined up every time there was a major occurrence in the Omaha franchise's life. It kind of correlated with something bigger happening in the minor league baseball's life. So that gave us a really good opportunity. What we're kind of hoping for to be like, okay, we can tell as best you, you can the broader story of 165 teams through the experience because as a, as a filmmaker i can't have 165 subjects unfortunately our audience's minds will go <laughs> they'll lose it will explode yeah 
But through what happened with the Omaha franchise, you could start to see, you know, little correlations. And they're not necessarily like to the day, but like right around the time that Bull Durham happened and the industry went on the uptick was the first time that um, Gus Cherry bought the Omaha franchise. It was independently, you know, operated. Uh, Mr. Buffett came on board right about the time of the 91 player agreement. There were all these really interesting little correlations of what happened. It is interesting how it uh, done. So you so you you go from storyboard. You're doing your research, then you start going uh, talking to folks. What were some of the things that you learned that you didn't think that you would learn from going and talking to these uh, uh, people? Besides how to roll a good T-shirt for a T-shirt cost. <laughs> I I mean honestly, what Bull Durham meant to the industry. I was really. I, I, yeah, dude, I don't know why. I mean, I can't speak for Bill, obviously, his take. But for me, I didn't understand that that had real world impact. I mean, you know, I'm 44. I was like 12 or something where it came out at 13. And I loved it as a movie, but I just thought it was a movie. I didn't really get what it did. But every single person we interviewed, if we were like, hey, give me the four turning points in minor league baseball, like of your execs, your Pat O'Connors and Branch Rickies, everybody was like, Bull Durham, Bull Durham. I don't know, Bill, did you realize it really changed things? Not until we started doing this. Same age as Dan and same kind of experience with Bull Durham <laughs> until we got to this film. So That's incredible. I, uh, you know, I'm not even sure that I would put that uh, together, but then you start thinking about it. It was like, yeah, I guess it did uh, have such a huge impact. So you, uh, you're talking to people. I got to ask this. You guys all said you're baseball fans and such, and you talked to some big names. Anybody you get nervous uh, talking to? Warren Buffett or George Brett or anybody? Rob Crane? Well, naturally <laughs> Rob Crane uh, because Marty warned us and was like, this will be absolutely awful. Uh, he's like, he's like I'm, I'm sorry. He's like, he's like, Rob will be terrible to be around. No, um, I mean, for me – uh, Mr. Buffett was um, the most nerve wracking because we got 11 minutes with Warren Buffett, which is amazing. I mean, um, but it was so tight and efficient. And so like, there's no mistakes. There's no like, oh, oh, hey, did we have a buzz in the audio? I'm sorry. Can we do that again, Mr. Buffett? It's just yeah, like, um, I was nervous with George. George Brett was definitely the for me, the fanboy, like I was, geek out a little bit, right? Yeah, that you're and that's like, okay. That's okay. Yeah, that was, um, and and then the other one was uh, was Jack McKean. Um, really? Yeah. Um, was he pounding cigars? Right. Oh <laughs> um, yeah, dude, he's so amazing. He was like, uh, so we figured out, you know, we were going to go shoot in Durham. He lives out in North Carolina and we we're like, Hey, you know, Mr. McKean, like we'll, we'll drive to your place. You know, Jack, he's in his eighties and he's like, nah, he's like, that's silly. It's only 60 miles. I'll drive up to the ballpark and meet you guys. I'm <laughs> just hilarious. like, yeah, he was, you know, he, he was incredible. And that, that was pretty cool. Um, honestly, it's kind of cheesy too, but, um, I mean, branch, branch B Ricky, because, um, like I said, my dad was a Brooklyn Dodger guy. And from a very young age, for me, always was imparting the importance of like Jackie Robinson and what he had meant. And like, you know, the whole, if you were from Brooklyn, if you have family from Brooklyn, you understand what the Dodgers meant to like working class. Um, so that was, I wasn't as nervous, but that was definitely 
in honor. That was one of the only m- moments when we were done. And I almost never do this. And I was like, Hey, Mr. Uh, Mr. Ricky, could we take a picture? You know, can we take a selfie together so I can send it to my dad? Cause I That's normally awesome. don't do that. That's awesome. They, uh, and for those who don't know, Branch Ricky, he's the president of the Pacific coast league. His grandfather was the one who signed Jackie Robinson. Pretty nuts. Pretty nuts. They, um, so when you guys are shooting all this, how many hours of film do you have uh, that you've got to then take and cut down to the final product? What's Bill, that what, process like? Bill, what did we say we ended up with? Like 50 interviews, 45? Yeah, I think. Yeah. So most of the interviews. Okay. So take away Mr. Buffett's. Uh, most of the interviews are about an hour. The high side um jj cooper from baseball america who was our glue guy we yeah, he, was, he was a great glue guy great glue guy i think his interview was four hours oh my god um everybody else is about an hour give or take so that's what in my awesome math about 50 hours right. yeah 50 60 hours so then take how do you go from 50 or 60 hours to uh the length of the film well, I'd say just that's interviews. That doesn't count the time that Dan was embedded, the time that oh, he was yeah. in Durham, the time that we're going and collecting photographs that, you know, we don't have video of, of past times, but we find a way to work those photographs in. I mean, Dan, I mean, it had to have been several hundred hours worth of film that we had to cut down to 90 minutes, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Thanks, oh Bill. I've, yeah, dude, that's only, I'm, yeah, I, I'm, that's great that we clarified that. Yeah. That's 50 hours of interviews of people talking, let, <laughs> let alone, you know, the selects. I think we shot, I think we filmed a total of about 12 games. Um, we probably shot 24 meetings, most of which never got used. Um, but they, and again, in a weird way, back to what I was talking about earlier about some research though, but sometimes some things that come out of those meetings, you know that you're like, okay, this meeting isn't going to fit in there, but um, you talked about this situation. So when we interview this person, we're going to ask about it or like, um, you know, hey, can we go, can we go film this now that this or that is, you know, now that we even knew that that's happening. Um so yeah, it's it, it's sort of hundred of hours, and so then some of that is where that writing where that writing comes in, and it's hard. Like it takes a lot of discipline when you're when you're a young filmmaker. What you do is you make a mess for yourself. Is you do a ton of interviews huh. with no direction. You ask everybody the same questions, and you have a giant pile of stuff that you try to make things into. The one thing that we we did a, a lot better this time in working with Bill and, and some of the other people on our team is is. And again, people don't necessarily think about that, but is it is casting in a documentary. Like I referred to JJ Cooper as the glue guy. Like we knew we wanted and needed a knowledgeable journalist, like from that perspective, because that's a, a, a mechanic that you have in documentaries. And we, JJ came at the last minute. I mean, Bill, I know you had been trying to work with Gary. Do you remember some of the other people we were, we were talking about getting? Uh, local. Uh, who had been around the, the the team for a long time, but maybe not minor league baseball. Yeah, so it just was hard finding the 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 right spot. But yeah, that becomes a a, a big thing. And then um, you transcribe interviews, you log footage, and you start 
you start cutting it down and you got to, you, you know, you try to know where you want to go. I think the first version I gave Bill, um, which was, you turn in what's called a radio edit oftentimes for, for producers. So it's just audio. Um, you send, you know, you send like an MP3 and it wasn't terribly, I think it was maybe like, Bill, was it like 20 minutes fatter than the movie? Yeah, it was 155 or so. Okay. Um, I'm sorry, an hour and 55. Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, so, so yeah, that's, that, that's kind of, that's kind of some of that process, how you go down. I mean, you get, you get interviews transcribed, you know, and you write, you figure, you figure out scenes. I mean, you know, in our area, we had, um, you know, and you find clips like this all over the place, the, um, you know, the colored note cards, it's, you know, you break your storytelling into acts and scenes and, and you move stuff up on the board and then you cut a, you know, you, you cut a scene out. Um, you know, you, you try to do as much of the process before you get into the edit suite as possible, knowing you're always going to take some turns in a certain way, but, but that's kind of the way that you try to be the most efficient with it. They, uh, I, I just can't imagine sitting there and being like, you've got hundreds and hundreds of hours and be like, all right, go make this uh, 90 minutes. <laughs> um, so one of the things I've always been very interested in is, so you've got this idea, you go through these hundreds and hundreds of hours, is can you walk us through like the business of this? How do you guys make money? How does a film make money or lose money? How does it, how does it work? I'm, I'm dying to know the intricacies of the, uh, of the sports documentary business. Yeah. Well, they lose money way easier. It's absolutely <laughs> um, very little effort required. The, so what was interesting with this is like Dan had said, we had produced um, some more minor sports documentaries and some different genres. And um, this was, something different for us, not just in, in the story that we were telling and the size of it and the, and the characters, but also in that business side. And we were determined to teach ourselves this business um, by even if it meant kind of doing it the hard way. So as Dan's going through this process and I start to see what we're putting together, um, I just blindly started reaching out to distributors that Dan and I had identified as distributors we'd like to work with to get this out onto major streaming platforms to make the pitches to um, streaming services, subscription services, and go do that work for us and then follow along. We, we definitely didn't have the connections to go do that ourselves. We knew we needed a distribution company. So we went out and I started reaching out um, to people, letting them know the story that we had and why we thought it was a great story. And, and we had done a little bit of the film circuit. I wanted to make sure that we did some festivals first and, and built some buzz. So we built some buzz, we won some awards, we got uh, some great reviews, and then I started reaching out to distributors to, to try and bring them in. Um, and then we made a choice on which one we thought was going to be best for us, and Gravitas is the, the distribution and production company that, that we chose to go with. Uh, their, their list of documentaries that Dan and I had, had seen and loved was like unparalleled, and we were super excited to, to get that, and then... Uh, worked well enough that we were rolling into the second one with them. So uh, we, it was trial and error. We did not know going in. We did not, there's not a, I don't know, maybe there is, but there wasn't a, a guidebook on how to go do this. And we didn't have a mentor or someone taking us through it. We were just going to figure it out on our own, just kind of the way we do a lot of things as entrepreneurs. 
The only yeah. thing we knew for sure, Rob, was that you cannot call Netflix yourself directly and be like, hey, <laughs> we've got this baseball documentary. I've, I've tried that to no avail over, over, the, over the years. But yeah, dude. And I mean, that's like, it is, that side of it is so important. Like I can speak as like the, the creative, like it doesn't matter. You know, it's a good, it's a good formula, but without that hard work of a producer, um, and that elbow grease of, you know, making those phone calls and those emails and those sleepless nights. And that's why you see all of those people at the Academy Award stuff, even for the documentaries, all those guys come up and, and it's, it's such hard work. And it's so, you know, as a director, like to have a, the production company and, and the executive producers, like believe in your, the work that much is like a, a, a pretty amazing thing. So brag a little bit. You said you won some awards. You guys have won a whole bunch of awards for this thing, right? The cabinets are full. Yeah, yeah, we did. I mean, um, you know, I mean, God bless. We're so, like I said, we're so lucky. I mean, we probably had two dozen um, festivals screen us and, and, and selected. And that's, and so, and so again, you know, to kind of give some perspective, like the um what some people would call like the golden era of film festival stuff was this you know back in like the mid to late 90s um it was super exclusive and super small and like you go get screened at sundance um or and they're all distributors there watching the movies and then they walk away and you know they hand kevin smith a check for his movie and it's like it doesn't work like that now. I mean, there are, there are literally thousands of, I think even the Omaha film festival where it was a place that obviously we got selected and, and screened, um, got over like 2000 submissions. So no kidding. To, Holy cow. Yeah. So even just to be one of those couple hundred, um, is a, a, a pretty, a pretty amazing deal. We had a lot of success in, in, in some of those, uh, festivals, the other thing that's interesting for us as a doc that we learned, um, which I can totally understand, is film festivals aren't super in love with screening docs because they could show three artists' shorts in the time, a full-length documentary, I should say, takes up, you know, a 90-minute film. Um, so we we had a lot of, of cool screenings. Um, we got um, Best in Show, at the Austin Revolution Film Festival down in Austin, Texas, uh, which was super cool and super unexpected. Um, that was a really, really fun event. Um, uh, their curators down there, uh, um, Jason and James Christopher, are, are, are awesome. Um, Omaha, Kansas City, um, Utah. Um, yeah, we, we I think we ended up with about like a dozen um, best documentaries. Um, so it was, um, it was, it was a really, it was a really nice experience. So now the, all the talk is, uh, everyone's watching the Jordan documentary on ESPN. Are you watching that and taking techniques and trying to learn from that? What do you as filmmakers, when you're watching a documentary like the Jordan one, are you trying to emulate that? Are you trying to steal ideas or are you just enjoying it like the rest of us? Mm. It's funny, Dan and I were just talking about that. And <laughs> we both kind of consume content that is longer form the same way where we will make sure that we have 
block of uninterrupted time to to watch something like that because we are dissecting it. So we had both watched, I think, the first episode of that and hadn't gone any further because we hadn't been able to put together a block of time. I think we wanted it to have its run. But you definitely watch things differently. You watch how stories are told. Even something as crazy as like uh, um, the Tiger King stuff on, on Netflix <laughs> where you're like watching and you're like, you know, like as a filmmaker, like as a producer of films, I was like, how does this story get told? Like, how does this connect with audiences when there's really no endearing characters anywhere in this entire film, but somehow it captures, you know, the attention of America for a couple of weeks. And, you know, so I think we definitely watch things differently. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it influences, I guess it's kind of like being, um, maybe being like a magician or like, you know, a pro wrestler. Cause we can't, we can't go a podcast without me referencing pro wrestling. <laughs> complete nerd. But like um, you have to almost force yourself once you become in the business um, to watch it just as a fan. But on the flip side, you, you have a really further appreciation for some of the mechanics going on there. So yeah, you're always watching for technique and you're always looking for, like how they approach different things. Um, and, you know, you, it's, it's that concept a bit too. Like there's no new ideas, but the collection, the mosaic of a bunch of esoteric ideas is a new idea. Right. Yeah. Right. So there might be like a technique somewhere, like honestly, like in 50 summers. Oh, go ahead, Bill. Were you going to mention the Rick Blair documentary? I was go tell that story, <laughs> dude. No, so uh... That was your idea. That was great. Yeah, we uh, we watch everything um, and, and take in things that we like and, and try to find ways that we can maybe apply it in our own way. And we're fortunate enough with our um, companies and our agency to have a, a cartoonist in house who is our creative director and uh, went to went and got his master's degree in cartooning, which I didn't even know existed. But having I didn't him know on staff, existed either. right? So. Uh, a real blessing. And, and as we're creating the film, the Ric Flair 30 for 30 came out and watched it. And there was some pieces of the documentary that they animated. Uh, obviously they didn't have anything. It, it could have been Ric Flair talking throughout the whole thing, telling his story and, and the talking head interview, but you can only have so much of that and keep the attention. So what they did is they substituted animation for some of these scenes from his past, especially like in his college days or leading up to his college days. And like we, I watched that. And of course, Dan and Max watched it because it was wrestling. And I was like, man, if there's a place in the film where we can do something like that and take advantage of Max and add to the, to the film and the experience for the fans, like, let's do it. And then Dan found a place and kind of like you were saying, like, you don't know everything that goes into it and you come out with a new appreciation. Dan, as a filmmaker, probably you learned something about the animating or animating a piece of the film there. Oh yeah, for sure. And, and what, what's cool about that, uh, Bill, Bill brought that up. I still remember the day he walked in studio talking about that. Um, we didn't think to apply it until probably like six or nine months later. You know, it just kind of went in the bag of tricks and we had gotten to this scene with Jack McKean and he's telling an awesome story. There's no footage of it. And it's, but it's also like 17 minutes long and I can't have a 17 minute story about drinking belts upstairs at <laughs> Rosenblatt as much as I would like to. And so just going back to that technique, we're like, Oh God, Bill's idea about like the Ric Flair doc. Oh, you know, 
bringing bringing that in like that's that's kind of an example so yeah you're watching these things and you're 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 putting you know you're putting little pieces in different different areas it's interesting and uh it seems to me that you're always kind of learning and uh i i when i go to a to put this in kind of my my world when i go to like a different sporting event uh, I can't go in like without looking at the advertisers or what's going on between innings or if it's a baseball game or at halftime or during time, uh, timeouts. It's just like you just look at the world uh, totally differently. And I can only imagine with you guys that you basically look at every piece of content from a from your lens. And uh, uh, it's very unique and uh, very interesting. Um, and um, it's a. Uh, it's it's a pretty cool pretty cool way. So um, I'd like to transition from what you were doing in uh, in Fifty Summers, and Fifty Summers is awesome. Uh, but also, your company is much more than just a film company. It's a content company, and many of our listeners are uh, up and coming sports executives, and they are trying to get into marketing departments of sports teams or uh, you know agencies and. Uh, they're talking about a lot of it is based on uh, creating content and how do you potentially monetize content. Uh, as the world is changing, um, where do you guys see uh, people's consumption habits of content changing? And how do you go about building engaging content that people actually want to consume? You know, I think uh, one of the things that so what we have is a collection of companies. Herdat is part of a larger organization. I'm sorry, Herdat Films is part of a larger organization uh, called Herdat. And Herdat is a media marketing and entertainment agency. And I think what we are doing is kind of uh, casting bets on a lot of different platforms. Even down, I, there's a, a piece of print media that we put out that we think print has a place and, and it's not dead. There's people who like to have something tangible that they can hold on to when they're reading a story, especially the storytelling that we do in, in that particular publication. But uh, we have sports media marketing that crosses from print, radio, TV, podcast, film, video, web, social. And if you don't reach your consumer, on the platform or the medium that they expect to be found or expect to find you on, you don't get that consumer. It's no longer, I have one place to go to get my content, right? I'm going right. to go and I'm going to watch a television show and I have three stations and that's it, right? That's 50 years ago. And I have the movie theater that has two screens. If I'm lucky, probably one and I get one choice of entertainment. Well, now they can go anywhere and they get what they want when they want it, how they want it. And you just have to be ready to meet them on each of those platforms and then adjust your storytelling a little bit for what that platform is, right? I can't take the same thing I'm doing in print or in film and bring that over to a podcast. We have to tell the same story, but in a different manner for that podcast consumer versus the video consumer. So I think, you know, for us, it's we're casting bets on a lot of different things and, and just trying to find the consumer where they want to get the story from. Where do you think the consumer goes, uh, either post COVID or kind of in the next, you know, one to three, three years, is it uh, more video? Is it, is it a different, you know, is it a different platform? Is it TikTok? Is it something that we don't even know about? 
I, I put just as much on something we don't know about as something that we do. Uh, video has been growing um, exponentially for years. And, you know, at some point it, it has to level off, right? Uh, there's only so much video people can consume and still make money. And I think you start to see some contraction in some of the production companies, the number of films and, and pieces of content that are coming out. I think COVID gives an opportunity for a lot of people to go um, place a lot of orders for new content because we only have one way to get it. But afterwards, people are going to reach back out for those things that they didn't realize they were missing. That could be minor league baseball, right? You don't realize how much you miss that experience um, and that story that unfolds on the field over three hours, uh, nine innings in front of you. Uh, you don't realize how much you miss the movie theater. You don't realize how much you miss the road trip. So I think uh, some of this on-demand stays strong, but we start to see a movement back towards things that we didn't realize how much we missed until they were actually gone. <laughs> that's in, that's so interesting. It's so cyclical. You know what I mean? It's like right. you go one way and then you kind of come back and then maybe you kind of end up uh, somewhere in, in, in center. And uh, so when you see young people and this kind of goes into no matter what you're doing, trying to get their start and what are you looking for when uh, you know you've got people that are just trying to get going in? Uh, we'll call it the content creation business. What are what are some of the things that helps people stand out um, from the rest of the herd, if you will? Oh yeah, there's so many content creators of so many different kinds. Um, Hell, everyone's want, a content creator. Everyone's got a right? phone and a video on their on their cell phone. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, I'm probably the worst content creator and the quietest person in, in this business. And, um, but you're right. Everyone's a content creator and everybody has something and, and everybody thinks that what they're doing is special. But the fact is very rarely are you going to find that unicorn, right? They, they come along once in a great while. And what you're looking for is raw talent, people who can be sincere, people who can do good research, who can go find the story that's underneath the story, right? If, there's a lot of obvious stories and a lot of obvious ways to go tell a story out there, but can someone stretch and find the story that is within that, or that hasn't been told or the one slice out of this, you know, larger narrative that somebody would, would pay attention to. Um, so that sincerity, the ability to do research. And if, if you get somebody who has a creative skill set and can take something that is written and maybe move it into social and maybe even some, some other formats because they have like, kids today are coming into my company with skill sets that um, amazes me, you know, like their proficiency within different mediums and their ability. And, and Dan, you might see it too on the film side. Um, but it's, it's really amazing at what they're able to produce. And then our job is just kind of set them in the right direction and, and help them use those tools that they developed in school in the real world application. Yeah. I'd, I'd say like from a, from like a creative, like the, a senior creatives perspective in some of that, that stuff is, is if you want to really stand out, um, if you can show a fundamental understanding of storytelling, Huh. of the three acts because like like what bill said i like i see kids um you know i see young people come out today that are um technically proficient in the software at a level quickly that i haven't seen you know that's mm -hmm. that's mind-blowing um but and and obviously this has to do with you know the programs you're coming through and whatnot but like school programs but um the they maybe haven't had as much work in where are the beats what is the three act structure whereas and 
what hasn't changed and will never change, in my opinion, is storytelling and the fundamentals of storytelling. Now what will change, and like Bill's always challenging me to do this, which I really appreciate, when we work outside of the film area and stuff like that, is he's like, hey, how do you how do you tell a story in six seconds? And I'm like, come on, bro. You got to give me nine, at least give me nine (laughs) seconds. Um, But that's very valid. And the thing is, is if you understand the mechanics and the, where the beats, you know, where beats are in a scene and those kinds of things like that, um, you can figure out how to scale that down. And in a more micro area um, have a very compelling, piece and so for like a young person really trying to stand out like for me um it's not as much about your reel but if you demonstrated those kinds of understandings like that is very very um attractive and then also the ability when you talk about content creator of to take notes because when you're talking about client side stuff you're always going to have some interactions with the clients and you're going to have to be in and how quickly and receptive a, a person can be to those things um, can really make them stand out and really be valuable. Um, Bill and his team have done a really good job. A lot of the been able to add some really great young people to, um, you know, to, to his, his content company. But, you know, for me, those are, those are two things, man. If you can show that you understand story, um, you can, because that, that translates over to whatever this next big thing is, right. That we don't know what it is. Um, they, uh, you know, I think the old adage, uh, I interviewed Pat O'Connor on this podcast one other time. And one of his, uh, lines was God gave you two ears and one mouth for a reason. And I think, <laughs> uh, listening and, uh, as whether you're on the, uh, you know, client facing side or when you're, you know, doing interviews for content, I mean, you are, uh, listening is one of the, one of the key features and, uh, key skills that, uh, in all honesty, not everyone has. But uh, as we wrap this up, how on earth do people go and find 50 Summers? How can they go find your great documentary with the star of the show, uh, Rob Crane, and that little <laughs> middle, that little guy uh, who had a very minuscule part in Marty Cordero? Uh, all the streaming platforms are out there. Oh, sorry. So, uh, yeah. yeah, sorry. iTunes, Google Play, Amazon. Uh, I think Voodoo, uh, 50summers.com is a website that we built that gives you a little more information and I'll point you in the right direction for whatever uh, streaming service is, is the one of your choice. I, I got it. I stream it. Um, it was it was a lot of fun to do. I will say this. Um, Marty goes, uh, hey, we're going to be doing a documentary. Uh, they want to talk to you at the winter meetings. And I was like, oh, okay, Marty, what is this? Is this a, like a... <laughs> like a high school thing fine i'll talk to whoever you want me no 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 it's big it's real it's big it's real i was like oh, okay fine i'll, I'll do it I'll, I'll do it no matter what but i still in the back of my head was like all right we'll do this little high school thing and then i got i went in and it was like holy shit this is like a thing right and uh it was a production and a half and i was thoroughly impressed uh and i probably was a little hung over when i talked to you guys but uh um I'm sure I had, um, uh, it, but it was a ton of fun. You guys were true professionals. You guys almost made me cry. I remember talking about yeah. my and our relationship. Uh, that was that was a. Uh, you guys did you get you did a good job. Can I turn it on you real quick, Rob, and ask you a question? Yeah, ask me. Ask anything you'd like, buddy. Um, 
So when you saw it screened at, at winter meetings, like what did you, cause you know, you're a sports guy, so I'm sure you knew, like, I, I don't know. Cause when we talked to you, you didn't know this. This was very last minute. Uh, what did you think when you heard Rob Riggle's voice as the narrator? <laughs> well, first off, I, I'm not the biggest movie guy. And then uh, I remember going, I recognize that voice. And I like hit somebody and I was like, whose voice is that? They're like, Rob Riggles. I was like, oh yeah, Rob Riggles. I know that name. But I was like, yeah, good. You got like stars. And I was more and more impressed. You guys did great. Rob was awesome. He was, yeah, he was, he was really cool to get. Um, Obviously he's a big Kansas city fan. So huge. It was incredible. Um, Again. And that was Bill's God, I'm pretty sure that was Bill's idea was to, was to reach out to him. Um, You guys did great. It was, it was, it was, it was wonderful. And uh, I'm so appreciative of having that uh, opportunity uh, in my life. And I just want to say, thanks. It was, it it was great. I definitely, so I remember, uh, I'm not going to lie. I I teared up when there was old pictures of Marty and I at like Rosenblatt. He's got the glasses on and it's like, there's like a, a time where it's like, I could see my eyes looking at him trying to soak up everything that he was saying because at that time, and I hope it's still now, but was trying to be a sponge to him. I was, uh, I could, I could like see it. I could see me trying to learn. And it was like, you know, it just showed the impact that, uh, I give him a lot of shit, but, uh, Marty is, you know, I could see me trying to want to one day emulate him. That is so awesome to hear. Like as as filmmakers, like knowing that a story moves somebody that way. And I always tell Dan, like, you know, I I know that we have a scene or or something that's good because the the hair on the back of my neck will start to stand up. And just hearing you tell that story and the way it moved you did the same thing. It was like all of a sudden I got the (laughs) hair standing up on the back of my neck. Like, oh, my gosh, Dan nailed it. That's so awesome. Yeah. Well done. Well done. I'll give you a. Uh, good job, <laughs> but uh, I'll say it was it was a lot of fun, and uh, so was this. This conversation was a lot of fun. I uh, I learned a lot, um, and uh, I just want to say thanks for taking the time. Uh, my partner Chris Valente, uh, I'm not like I said a, a few times on this podcast. I haven't seen like maybe the last movie. Who knows what the last movie I've seen? But uh, he thinks it's uh, unbelievable that I haven't seen any movies, but was in a uh, sports uh, documentary. He just thinks that's the most ironic thing in the whole history of the world. But, uh, well, anyway, uh, I just want to say uh, thanks again and uh, enjoy it. And uh, for everyone, go uh, go find 50 Summers and, uh, and, and, give it a, and give it a watch. It was uh, It's really good. So, guys, thanks again for joining me. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Rob.